All right. Well, we are uh, continuing in the book of Genesis uh, through the stories of what are sometimes called the patriarchs, although I'll argue, especially tonight, that a matriarch would be better for today's story than patriarch, probably. Um, but we've been going through the story of Abraham, uh, Abraham's uh, sons, uh, Isaac. The, we've talked a couple weeks ago about the binding of Isaac and that very disturbing story and tried to think about it in some new lights. If you weren't here, I hope you'll go back and listen to that. Uh, last week we talked, uh, if you remember where we left off last week, was the, um, the classic marriage story of Isaac and Rebekah. The classic boy meets girl uh, that at a well and then purchases her for his uh, master's son and she goes back and falls off the camel and falls in love with him. It's just a very classic story we've all seen a thousand times. Um, and so we talked about that last week. Uh, and since that time, we're, we're gonna, it's going to skip a couple uh, chapters uh, to this week's passage where we get into the whole Jacob and Esau saga. And in that, in that meantime, what we didn't cover and what we won't read today um, is uh, Sarah dies. Uh, during this time, Abraham's uh, wife dies. Uh, Abraham goes on to marry some other people and have more kids after he's 100 years old. Uh, so uh, Father Abraham had many, many sons with many ladies and concubines uh, had Father Abraham. So um, eventually, though, uh, then Father Abraham passes too at the age of 175 and is buried with Sarah, even though uh, it doesn't appear that they live together after the whole binding of Isaac thing anymore. He's buried with her, and he's buried by both Ishmael and Isaac, um, who are, of course, uh, estranged in a lot of ways as well. Um, and that's where the, those are what has happened in these, in these moments. And so we're going to get into the story now. We're going to go to Isaac's kids, right? Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau, and talk through that story. But I want to remind us about a temptation we have as we read these stories, particularly these kind of long character stories we have in the Old Testament. Remind us of a temptation and encourage us to avoid it once again, right? When we're reading this story about this particular line of people in the Old Testament that God has made a promise to and God is remaining faithful to that promise. Uh, and again, this story is chiefly about God's faithfulness, not about heroic people because these people uh, are messy at best. Um, we want to remember uh, to not give in to the temptation to try and assign good guys and bad guys in the story, to try and make anyone one thing, right? To say, oh, this, this one's the person on the right, this one's the person on the wrong, and to kind of establish those kind of characters. Um, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Uh, if someone's the good guy, how do I explain away what they did that really seems pretty fishy and wrong? If they're the bad guy, how do I make sure that everything they've done is evil and bad so I can think about them that way? It just isn't that easy. All this story, like all of life and all of people, uh, is just more complicated than that, right? People aren't one thing, and neither are the characters uh, in these stories. So let's not give in to that temptation because uh, we will especially run into that in the story of Jacob because Jacob is part of God's promise, and, uh, and also uh, he is a shady character at the same time. And so there's been a lot of temptation when I was growing up they always found a way to spin whatever Jacob did to make it a nice thing to do. Uh, and the truth is, a lot of what Jacob does is just not nice. Uh, God still uses him. God still holds to God's promise. Uh, but Jacob uh, is, uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't want him to be your money manager or anything else. I can promise you that. So uh, what I think we're going to do, we did this last week and I felt like it worked well with uh, kind of the narrative style here. So I'm going to ask you once again to grab one of the Bibles out of the, uh, the pew in front of you. Uh, you guys have some underneath the seat in front of you and those little things if you need. 
I think you're going to be on page 21. I'm reading a slightly different version than you have. Um, and I'm realizing we didn't turn on one of these lights here, and I'm just blind enough to need it, if I can find it. And we are going to be in, aha, uh-huh. and God said, and it was good. Okay, uh, we are in uh, chapter 25 of Genesis. We're going to start in verse 19, and we're going to read first about uh, Jacob and Esau being born, and, and then Jacob tricking, not tricking, uh, buying Esau's uh, birthright from him, and then later on when he kind of steals it from under his blind father's nose. So a little bit of reading, we'll stop a little bit on the way, and then we'll talk about kind of the weirdness of this story. So we're in, again, in verse 19, chapter 25 of Genesis. It says this, These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, of the, the Aramean, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean, from Padam Aram. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife since she was unable to have children. So we see the same theme popping up again in the next generation where people who are promised children and promised a big lineage are struggling to have a baby. And so Isaac, who loves Rebekah, that's not a given thing in marital relationships back in those days. Sometimes they're just arranged marriages, but these two really do love each other. In fact, one of the stories uh, that we won't cover is a story when just like Sarah and Abraham uh, Isaac passes off his wife as his sister because he's afraid that a more powerful person is going to kill him. And the way they get found out is that the, uh, the more powerful person sees them, uh, I think the, uh, the proper Hebrew word is canoodling uh, someplace because <laughs> they can't keep their hands off each other. And he goes, wait a minute, that's not your sister, that's your wife. What are you trying to do? And then lets them go uh, free. And so uh, these, two, these two like each other. Uh, and yeah, I don't, I don't know how to spell canoodling, but feel free to use that this next week sometime. Uh, the Lord was moved by his prayer, and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. And the boys pushed against each other inside of her. And she said, if this is what it's like, why did it happen to me? And all the women in the room said, amen. Okay. Um, so I, one thing to point out there, because it's such a short little verse, Isaac feels bad, his wife cannot get pregnant, he prays to God, Rebecca gets pregnant, then the thing that she's wanted is also the hardest thing she's going through, so she's saying, why me? But what you don't realize until later on, in like uh, verse 26 or 27, is it points out that all this, the pregnancy happens when Isaac is 60. So the math here is that Isaac, there's 20 years before she gets pregnant. Right? It's just, a, just a one verse here, so you don't think much about it. So don't think about it like, he prayed the next day, she's pregnant kind of thing. This is, you're talking about a lot of struggle. You're talking about um, God not being in the kind of hurry maybe that we might like God to be in. There's, uh, I almost, that was almost the sermon tonight, honestly, but we decided, decided not to do that. But, so it's a big, big deal, long-term thing going on here. So she went to ask the Lord when she's having all this trouble with the pregnancy. She went to ask the Lord, and the Lord said to her, this is important here, the Lord talks to her, not to Isaac, The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two different peoples will emerge from your body. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. So she prays to God and God talks to her. That's a big deal, right? God doesn't talk to Isaac. He does hear Isaac's prayer, but he doesn't talk to Isaac. He talks to Rebecca and tells her, you've got twins. The younger is going to be in charge of the older, which is not the way it's supposed to work in that time in that place. So she now knows something that no one else knows. When she reached the end of her pregnancy, she discovered that she had twins. The first came out red all over, clothed with hair, 
And she named him Esau. Esau is a kind of a play on that idea of red. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's a hairy baby. Uh, immediately afterwards, his brother came out gripping Esau's heel, and she named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. So the red hairy one and the one grabbing the heel, and the name kind of means usurper is his name, right? He's like grasping at the person in front of him, which is a clue right off the bat. These names and what happens here helps to tell a little bit of the story of what's going to happen later on in, in biblical text. When the young men grew up, Esau became an outdoorsman who knew how to hunt, and Jacob became a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So you're beginning to see right off the bat here the setup of bad family dynamics. Uh, parents aren't supposed to have favorites. These two absolutely have favorites uh, and, and are, are heading that direction. Once when Jacob was boiling stew, Esau came in from the field hungry, and he said to Jacob, I'm starving. Let me devour some of this red stuff. And that red stuff actually resembles his name, Esau. And that's why his name is Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright today. Esau said, since I'm going to die anyway, what good is my birthright to me? So we should stop there for a moment. Most, there are some people who disagree. There's some people who maybe argue that actually Esau was starving here. Most commentaries I read, uh, and, and I personally think this, uh, Esau went out hunting for a day. It says he was hungry, but when he gets in there, he is starving and he is going to die. So he's a bit dramatic here, right? Uh, I'm, I, I'll do anything to eat right now. He's, a, he's that person who uh, just kind of feels strongly, and when that hunger is happening, he wants to meet that hunger uh, immediately. So he says, if I'm going to die anyways, he's not. Uh, what good is my birthright to me? Jacob said, give me your word today, and he did. He sold his birthright to Jacob. Birthright is what kind of the advantages that come with being the firstborn, right? Uh, to Jacob. So Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. You, you'd have to feed me better than that, honestly, for my birthright. Uh, lentil stew is great and all, but really? Um, he ate, drank, got up and left, showing just how little he thought of his birthright. So sell me your birthright. You're hungry. I'll give you this food right here. He says, yes. It's sneaky of Jacob. It's dumb of Esau. Um, and I, but, but to be honest, I'm not sure if Esau really is taking, we don't know if Esau is really taking this seriously or not, right? If you, if I was really hungry and you had a very juicy looking hamburger and you said, I'll give you this hamburger, but you have to sell me your soul, I'd probably take the hamburger because I don't think that deal actually works. I don't think you can take my soul. I don't think that's how the arrangement works. I probably wouldn't take it seriously. So I'm not sure if that's what's going on with Esau or he really does care that little about something that he can't see directly in front of him. Don't know. Um, there's also a little bit of, uh, you know, because each of these people will go on to be a nation, and these nations don't like each other. So there's a little bit of like, hey, here's why those Edomites are so this, this, and this, and it kind of, you know, explains away what they don't like about the other people. So there's a little bit of that going on here as well. All right, so we're going to skip past uh, uh, the canoodling and all that good stuff, and then we're going to go over to uh, chapter 26, uh, verse 34, and then we're going to get into when, the, when they are even older. Uh, it says in 34 of chapter 26, when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and Basemath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. Feel free to reserve those names in your uh, pool for potential births later on. Uh, Beeri and Basemath. Um, and they made life very difficult for Isaac and Rebekah. So Esau married Hittites. Uh, Hittites were not ones that uh, they wanted to be marrying with, right? That's why they went out to get Rebekah for Isaac. He marries those women 
and they make life very difficult for Isaac and Rebecca. I wish we had more details, but we don't. Um, chapter 27. When Isaac had grown old and his eyesight was failing, he summoned his older son Esau and said to him, My son? And Esau said, I am here. So he has gone blind. He calls his favorite son the oldest son. When he comes in the room, he has to ask if it's him. My son? Yes, it is me. I'm here. He said, I am old and I don't know when I will die. So now take your hunting gear, your bow and your quiver of arrows. Go out to the field and hunt game for me. Make the delicious food that I love and bring it to me so that I can eat. Then I can bless you before I die. So he says, I don't know how long I'm going to be here. My eyesight's gone. I'm unhealthy. Go do the thing that you do so well. Make the thing that I love so much, and then I will bless you. And of course, I I think this blessing from Isaac is very important to Isaac because you remember what happened with his father. His father tried to sacrifice him on an altar. He and his father are never seen together again. He never receives a blessing from his father. So that sense of needing to bless his oldest child is probably a very deeply seated thing uh, for Isaac. Then I can bless you before I die. Verse 5, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau went out to the field to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I just heard your father saying to your brother Esau, bring me some game and make me some delicious food so I can eat, and I will bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Now, my son, listen to me, to what I'm telling you to do. Go to the flock and get me two healthy young goats, and I can prepare them as delicious food that your father loves. A couple things here that I think are interesting. One, Esau doesn't say anything to his father about having sold his birthright. So there doesn't seem to be any indication that he's going to try and honor that, that promise that he has made when his father's gone, right? The other thing that this is just weird to me, and I think it's funny, is that Isaac really wants this wild game, go out and hunt this wild game, and then she tells Jacob, give me some goats, and I'm going to cook those, and he's going to like that, which I feel like you would know the difference between goats and whatever wild game was out there, unless he's out there hunting goats, which is weird. That seems really easy. I think I could hunt goats, honestly. I don't think they, they're very fast or good. So um, I don't know. I don't know what that is. I don't know if he was going to, I assume he's not hunting goats, but she thinks she can uh, prepare it in such a way that he won't notice that it's goats and not wild game. Hunting goats is like hunting cows, right? I don't really feel like that, that works. You just put peanut butter on the end of the, it's, it's easy. Um, all right. So I can prepare them delicious food that your father loves. Verse 10, you can bring it to your father, he will eat, and then he will bless you before he dies. Jacob said to his mother, Rebekah, my brother Esau is a hairy man, but I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me and thinks I'm making fun of him? I'll be cursed instead of blessed. His mother said to him, your curse will be on me, my son. Just listen to me. Go and get them for me. So he went out and got them and brought them to his mother, and, her, and his mother made, a delicious, made delicious food that his father loved. Rebekah took her older son Esau's favorite clothes that were in the house with her, and she put them on her younger son. On his arms and smooth neck, she put the hide of young goats, and, and the delicious food and the bread she had made, she put in her son's hands. Jacob went to his father and said, My father. And he said, I'm here. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your oldest son. I've made what you asked me to do. Sit up and eat some of the game so you can bless me. Isaac said to his son, How could you find this so quickly, my son? The answer is he's hunting goats. It's easy. It doesn't take long, right? Uh, he said, The Lord your God led me right to it. Isaac said to Jacob, Come here and let me touch you, my son. 
are you my son Esau or not? So obviously Jacob's doing a bad job on the voice at this point and uh, is needing help, right? So Jacob approached his father, Isaac, and Isaac touched him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the arms are Esau's arms. Isaac didn't recognize him because his arms were so hairy like Esau's arms. So he blessed him. Isaac said, are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. Isaac said, bring some food here and let me eat some of my son's game so I can bless you. Jacob put it before him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. His father Isaac said to him, come here and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him and Isaac smelled the scent of his clothes. He blessed him. See, the scent of my son is like the scent of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you showers from the sky, olive oil from the earth, plenty of grain and new wine. May nations serve you. May peoples bow down to you. Be the most powerful man among your brothers. May your mother's sons bow down to you. Those who curse you will be cursed. Those who bless you will be blessed. After Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and just as Jacob had left his father Isaac, his brother Esau came back from his hunt. He too made delicious food. Brought it to his father and said, Let my father sit up and eat his son's game so that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He said, I'm your son, your oldest son, Esau. Isaac was so shocked that he trembled violently. He said, who was the hunter who was just here with game? He brought me food and I ate all of it before you came. I blessed him and he will stay blessed. When Esau heard what his father said, he let out an agonizing cry and wept bitterly. He said to his father, bless me, bless me too, my father. Isaac said, your brother has already come deceitfully and has taken your blessing. Esau said, isn't this why he's called Jacob? He's taken me twice now. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. He continued, haven't you saved a blessing for me? Isaac replied to Esau, I've already made him more powerful than you. And I've made all of his brothers his servants. I've made him strong with grain and wine. What else can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, do you really have only one blessing, father? Bless me too, my father. And Esau wept loudly. His father Isaac responded and said to him, now you will make a home far away from the olive groves of the earth far away from the showers of the sky above. You will live by your sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will tear away his harness from your neck. The word of God in scripture for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. All right, so you have this dramatic story of these two brothers at odds, the one who tricks and deceives his way into getting the blessing, right? There is a lot happening in this story. But this week, as I, was, as I was studying it, there was one thing in particular that stood out to me and that I was wrestling with the most, and that is the strange juxtaposition of all these human decisions, all this chaotic human behavior, all this manipulation, all these things being done by people, decisions that they have made laid on top of this consistent thread of God's promise somehow being accomplished in the midst of it. God's will being done while people are doing all kinds of crazy things around it. Honestly, the story would be a little easier to uh, categorize if you just removed God altogether or if you remove people's decisions altogether, right? Because then it would either be an omnipotent God just making things happen the way God wanted or it would be deceitful and, and people doing what people do and tricking each other and getting ahead in this world. But instead, you have both those things happening at the same time. You have this tangled dance of human decision and will and God's providence and will interacting at the same time. It's hard to pull those things out from each other. 
Um, now, I uh, have told you before, and I will confess that I struggle, have struggled for a long time based on my own upbringing on this idea of God's will and what God does in this world and what God doesn't do in this world, right? And I, I know I've told you before my favorite analogy for trying to make sense of how all these things work together. I like the analogy that I have heard, uh, which is the idea of God as chess master, right? Um, that uh, what they say about a chess master is that someone who, uh, that you and I cannot beat in chess, the reason why we cannot beat them is because they can hold in their mind so many possibilities at once. If you've played enough and you're smart enough, you can hold possibilities all at once. So I know that if you move this piece, that opens up these 10 possibilities. And I can hold all 10 of those possibilities and the 10 that comes from those possibilities and the 10 that comes from those, right? And pretty soon you're into thousands of iterations at once. And a chess master, they say, can think many moves ahead of time and hold all those possibilities. So that no matter what the person across from them does, they know what all the possible outcomes are and can act accordingly, right? Um, I, I like that image, the idea of God as ultimate chess master, right? That we are all in some ways playing this chess match with God. And I know it falls apart because it sounds competitive. I don't mean it that way, but we are doing things. We are making moves in this world. We have the ability to say yes to this or no to that, to take this path or that path, to be this kind of person or that kind of person. And it is God's will to redeem things. It's God's will to bring goodness and love and hope into this world. And God is constantly taking all of us and all the iterations of all the decisions we make, good, bad, and ugly. And while we are actually doing things, we have that free will. We're never surprising God. We're never catching God off guard. And God is always, in the end, going to win. Right? You can't outplay the chess master. And, I, and I've always liked that, not always, I have for about 20 years now really liked that analogy because it helped to make sense of something that I've always really struggled with. Ultimately, love and grace and peace will win because I can't do anything to surprise God. And although God is not um, moving the pieces for me, I can't outmaneuver God's intent in this world. We would never surprise God or undermine God. God ultimately wants to accomplish something. God will accomplish that, even though these games take a million different paths, right? I think that way of framing things helps me when reading stories like the one that we just read. Because in stories like Jacob, we see the presence of a word that haunted me for a long time, and that word is election or being chosen. Right, uh, That is a loaded term for me, and not just theologically, because I grew up in the 80s and we had gym class. And gym class in the 80s, I think they've probably spared kids from this now, maybe they don't. Every gym class that I went to involved a choosing. And we would all get in groups, two people would be elected captains, your biggest dream would be to elect, be elected captain, because if you were elected captain, then you got to do the choosing instead of being the chosen. And we all stand there, and two people go, what are we playing? Basketball. And then they start to line everyone up and think about who gives them the best chance of winning, who's the most athletic, who's the most fun to play on my team, who's all these things, and they start drafting everyone, right? And every day, I'm there in the 80s in those little 80s shorts and tall socks <laughs> with my scrawny self 
just counting the rounds as they go by. And I was, I was a fence kid. I was one of the last ones on the fence. I wasn't real big or strong or real athletic. Uh, other guys got chosen before me. I wasn't the last one chosen, but I was embarrassingly enough far back in the order for the idea of chosen to be a haunting idea. I couldn't, I couldn't think of anything more glorious than being the first one chosen in something. It never happened to me, but I imagined it being the greatest thing that could happen. Right? So that idea of being chosen, just even in life, was difficult for me. And then you add to it, I grew up in a tradition that talked about those things in a very specific way. I was brought up to think about the election of God or God's choosing as an activity where God just randomly decides this person will go to heaven and this person will go to hell. This person goes to heaven, this person goes to hell. And we called that election. We called it being chosen or not chosen. And it wasn't based on anything. It was an unconditional election is what we called it. Some people were randomly picked to heaven. Others were randomly picked to go hell. And it was honestly the only sin they committed uh, any more than anyone else or any less than anyone else was the sin of having the audacity to be born, right? And that's how we talked about things. That's what we believe. That's what I was taught about God's choosing. Now, obviously, everyone in our church was in the former group. We were chosen. We were the first round draft. We weren't fence kids spiritually. We were the ones that God chose to go to heaven. Thanks be to God that we were the ones that were chosen. Now, people that were not in our church, a whole lot of them were staying on the fence, right? And on one level, we talked about what a tragedy it was, that there were people going to hell. Uh, but on the other level, we also called this justice. And I don't know how we reconciled those two things, but we did. And we felt good about the fact that we were not on the fence, right? Who are we to question God's decision-making? Regardless of whether it's fair, unfair, whatever you want to call it, we were chosen by God. We won the cosmic lottery. We enjoyed the privilege of being chosen. We enjoyed the privileges of election. And there was a lot that came with it. The way we talked about it, it wasn't just that we got to go to heaven with a free ticket. We were also kind of blessed with happiness, security. Our families should thrive. Everything should go well because God had chosen us. We were first round draft picks in heaven's PE class, and it was glorious. Not only was this the theology I was taught and the way we talked about it in my church, but it also fit very well in the cultural narrative I grew up in because I grew up American. And we believe we are the privileged chosen people. Even if you've never said that, on some level, you think it just like I do. We were Americans. Some even called us the new Israel in my church. We were God's chosen nation. We were, according to every president of both parties for the last 40 years, the light on the hill. We are chosen and so obviously chosen because God had blessed us with all the good stuff that we had that no one else had. They're waiting for hours for bread in Russia, not us. We are chosen. And knowing that we were chosen, knowing that we were God's chosen country, uh, meant that we were the good guys. We were the heroes of the story. And that really helped make sense of the world. Because every time there was a conflict, if there was a war that we got into, you didn't have to wonder who was right and who was wrong because we were God's chosen people. We are the heroes. They are the villains. We were destined for something. In fact, we, the, the term is called a manifest. We had a manifest destiny. 
somehow it was okay to kill millions of Native Americans and take their lands. Somehow it was okay to enslave millions of Africans so that uh, the original settlers could get rich at no cost because there was a manifest destiny. We were chosen. America was the good guys. We were justified. We were the heroes of the story. We were elected. We were chosen to win. Now, of course, there are millions of reasons to reject this way of thinking, and I'm not going to go through all of them. I think you know them. But this version, this way of thinking about being chosen is, uh, is problematic at least, culturally, but also theologically. I don't think that we can in good conscience believe in a God that has chosen us to bless us, to make us the heroes for our own sake. I think that's a path that leads to hell on earth, right? But I also can't deny that scriptures like today's demonstrate some version of election. God has chosen particular people for a particular task at a particular time for no particular reason that we know of. Jacob is chosen. God announces it before he's born. It happens, and we know how the rest of the story gets played out. However, I don't think that it looks like the kind of election or being chosen that we often endorse or that I grew up with. I think we would do well to remember that when God chooses in Scripture, it looks a little different. Being chosen in the stories of Scripture does, does not mean that the other people are cursed. Remember, Ishmael, Esau are both very blessed in their lives. They're just not the focus of this story. You know, the lens for this story stays with a particular group of people. It doesn't mean everyone else is cursed, right? Both of them live very blessed lives. Both of them grow and their families grow. They have stories. They are blessed in their own ways. And that means something. Just because we don't have all the details of it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Secondly, to be chosen in the story, in, in Scripture, is not always something you actually want. Being chosen does not mean that you get an easy, struggle-free existence. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all struggle. Being elected in these stories means to be chosen to serve God and God's purposes in the world, and that is a costly thing. It's not a lottery that you then sit back and comfortably, uh, comfortably in your riches and live the good life. It is a calling literally away from home, into the desert, into danger. And finally, we remember that being chosen and blessed by God is not an ends unto itself. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We are blessed to be a blessing. We are not stopping points for God's blessing. We are conduits of it. This is a large reason why most ideas of election are so problematic to me. They tend to imagine that the recipients who are chosen uh, are chosen to be blessed, and that's the end of the story. It's why Christian nationalism is so deeply heretical and dangerous and troubling 
and it's growing right now in our culture, which should bother all of us. It's people who imagine themselves to be chosen by God to dominate others. And you couldn't get more unscriptural than that. You couldn't get more unchristian than that. If you are chosen by God, you are chosen to serve. You are chosen to help. You are chosen to love, to uh, amplify God's blessings in this world. God has not chosen anyone just to be in charge and to gather for themselves. Like throughout Scripture, nations are judged on whether or not they are using their blessings to help the most vulnerable or not. Christ himself teaches that God did not come incarnate to this world to be served, but to serve. That is what being chosen is all about. So God may choose people, but it's not just that they get to win and revel in it. The extent to which someone is chosen by God, they are chosen to serve a higher purpose than themselves. And that is a costly thing. And that is very different from what we so often have in mind. Jacob himself will not become Israel until he is humbled and limping. And that should tell us something. Today's story illustrates to me that God does choose, but he's really weird about it. God chooses to work through the unexpected, the undervalued, the wounded, and the small. Rebecca is the main driver of this story. She doesn't get accredited with that as much, but she is. Culturally, she shouldn't matter at all. She was just bought by a stranger for, uh, to be a wife for that stranger's master at, in some foreign land. And yet she is the matriarch. She is the one who leaves her family and strikes out onto something new in the mold of Abraham. She is the one who helps Isaac and helps to heal his broken heart and loves this person who is so damaged so deeply and grieving so much. She is the actual one who hears from God, who knows what's coming next, and then does whatever she can to make sure it happens. She makes the plan. She makes sure it's successful in accomplishing what God said would happen. And then she protects Jacob when Esau flies off the handle and wants to kill him. It's a man's world, but Rebecca's running things. It's true of almost every church I've actually ever been a part of, including the ones who didn't recognize female leadership the ladies ever left, we'd all fall apart in about two minutes flat. It's a weird choice, Rebecca. She's not the first one you pick. You leave her on the fence. But Rebecca is the one that God chooses. Rebecca is the one who takes the bull by the horns. Rebecca is the one making choices that lean into God's plan. God uses Rebecca. Jacob it's a bad choice. He's younger. He's less masculine. He's a, he's, a, he's a fence kid, honestly. He's not the one you pick first for your team. And on top of being a not-so-masculine inside kid, he's sneaky and he lies with regularity and, and is very good at it. He's not whom you would expect God to have chosen for any purpose, let alone this one. We tend to believe that those with the most talent and the best resumes are the ones that matter. And Scripture clearly demonstrates God's propensity to choose the small, powerless, young, flawed, and unexpected people in order to bring about redemption in this world. Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Rebecca, Ruth, Mary, the other Mary, and of course, 
Jesus himself, none of them likely candidates for being God's blessing to this world. All chosen. All right, what am I trying to say here? We're going long. Thinking this week about our story, and I'm considering the following ideas. While we, as people of hopefully good faith, try to figure out what to do and when to do it and how to do it, we can rest assured that God is at work even in us. God is working out God's promises to us and through us as, uh, as much of a fence kid as we might be. That in all of our weakness, all of our flaws, all of our weirdness, somehow God is still blessing, still healing, still working through all of us unqualified little people so that we might be a blessing to a very broken world. I'm considering that you and that I are chosen, not because we deserve it, not because we warrant it. We are chosen because it is a gift from God. Not to revel in this gift, but we are chosen to serve and to love. We are chosen to be conduits of God's good work in a broken world. Considering that God doesn't really need more heroes, because none of us probably qualify. Just those willing to do the best they can with what they have in the moment, trusting God's grace to make up the difference. Just those who trust that God wants to use someone as unqualified and messy as them to do something good in this world. Those who can settle into the truth that they too are chosen to be God's blessing in this place right now. Congratulations. You've been chosen. Let's get, out the, get off the fence and play. Pray with me, please.